Hey guys, this is Tyler Platt with Grassroots Living Soil Podcast. Today, we have Scott with Cress's Soil Services. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Hey, thank you so much for coming on and being a big part of everything we've done in the last few years. So I want to thank you for all your input, um, all of your honesty, and all of the fun we've had over the years. You know, and the, the farm tours we've had in the past, and trips to Salinas, and running around in the Grassroots van. You know, those are fun times there, for those, sure. Those are very so, fun times, for sure. And this podcast is all about living soil and breaking into living soil and people that want to get into it. It's a huge craze right now and a great way to grow, a great way to live, a great lifestyle to have. And I think it impacts you across multiple different things. Mm-hmm. If you look at your crop, it's going to make you look at yourself and look at your health and stuff like that. And we're not here to talk about any of that. We're here to talk about living soil today and, and how to do that and how to, how to build it and how to create it. Um, you brought some great props here today, so I'm very excited about that. We've got some tools that you know professionals use. We've got some samples of inputs today that we're going to be going over. Um, I've got a little sample of fabric here. We're going to be playing with uh, moving some soil around and how to mix things and how to create things. So um, this is we're doing live demos here on the live, live demos here. So this is audio and video. So if you're getting this only um, on on audio, I would urge you to check it out on YouTube or some of the other forums where we have a, the video version of this because I think it's a lot more intuitive when you get to actually see us use and function with these things and and uh, interact with, with us directly. So mm-hmm. obviously like, comment, uh, highly suggest uh, subjects and situations and questions, and we would love to, you know, at certain points address those and stuff. So yeah. um, there's so much potential. There is, there is, there's a lot. And, and the, the important parts of it is um, there's a quick question which we could spend hours on, but I think it just needs to be addressed quickly because we're already there. Mm-hmm. We already know, but it's like, why living soil? Mm-hmm. If you were to break that down in, in 30 seconds, why would you grow in living soil based off of anything else? Well, I choose to grow in living soil because you're working with 300 million years of evolution. And regardless of how good we get at soil chemistry, regardless of how the farmer is equipped for performing certain functions, you're never going to be able to really match, replicate, or in a lot of ways outperform what this evolutionary process can provide for you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Now, um, then we got to get into how to build this and how to create this. And that that goes across so many different levels from small situation to large situations. And I, my next question, I kind of want to pose to you a cool little scenario, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say uh, you're mildly successful in growing in five to seven gallon pots with a cocoa peat mix from the store, from the hydro store. And you had your awesome little, um, you know, uh, organic growing nutrient program from a company and you were mildly successful with that, but you got to break into a bed. You want to get into living soil and you want to allow the microbes and the fungi that you're supplying and, and, you know, these inputs that you're putting in there to actually give them a chance to, to thrive and colonize. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, let's talk about getting into that scenario and you've gone from small fabric pots and you've got, you know, a a tent and a little bit of soil. Maybe you want to add in what you've already had going on and have that as a base so you don't have to pay much. Um, so yeah, I, I'm in a four by four by four tent Mm -hmm. and, um, I want to get into living soil. I've got a little bit of experience and I've got dreads. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Tyler's my favorite because um, he always keeps it light. People get really uptight in this industry, and I appreciate that you keep it light like I do. Yeah, like <laughs> that comment I made down in that class in, in L.A. 
can't go backwards, man. We can't, can't go, go backwards. backwards. We're that working right now. Yeah. yeah, that was good though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's important first to differentiate the difference between other types of organics and the goal of living soil. So there are a lot of organic techniques that might use organic nutrients that use like cocoa in a pot. Um, and but with living soil, we're really trying to create an ecosystem that has all the components. Um, biological from a chemistry mineral nutrition standpoint and then we're going to leave that soil in place for as long as possible um, and so this is what we would determine is like the living soil and you know our, our particular background is in the microscope analysis of soils so for us the the most important part of living soil is what is living there and that we're we're measuring these things not just saying buzzwords that are popular and so it's very important that we quantify our process that I know that's not accessible to everybody but you know there's a there's several people doing a lot of work with this type of analysis and I think it's important to kind of tap into what we've learned one of the things that we learned was when we put a um, non-permeable liner on the inside of the fabric pots we get a more hospitable environment to that living soil system uh, we have much more natural water movement. We have much more natural uh, evaporation, much less evaporation. And so for the goal of living soil, that is a very advantageous pot. Um, or So whether you're going in a pot or a bed, going with the living soil liner has proven to be very successful with the various living soil techniques. Uh, my wife and I run a consulting business. We work with the smallest of the small and the largest of the large. And regardless if, like you said, you're a 4 by 4 tent, or maybe you have 4,000 square foot of greenhouse space or maybe bigger. Um, a lot of the container decisions, I think, are very similar. I'm definitely an advocate of the largest container you can for your space within reason. You know, So if you're in a 4x4 four four tent, instead of doing four 30-gallon pots, I would suggest doing a 36-inch square or even... 3x3. Three three. Yeah, something like that. I'm a big dude, so I like to have place for my feet. So I don't like to max the soil out to the edges personally. Um, and you know, with the living soil and the lined pots, it behaves as a bigger container. And so those first pots that we really started testing, you know, we were getting 65 gallon pot performance out of a 30 gallon living soil lined pot. And so air pruning just wasn't all that, that it was cracked up to be. Yeah. And it just wasn't working. Right. So without that, um, the white layer on the inside of the pot, we we're having massive amounts of evaporation from all sides. And, you know, in my observation of nature, most soils have one surface open to evaporation. Um, in the cultivation space, like it is native good. soil. Yeah, exactly, like the nature. And so we do live leave a breathable area down on the bottom, as you can see, and that's um, working really well. Um, but so, I think as the industry starts to evolve with the new containers and what that offers you, is I think people will be able to go into smaller size containers than they previously were to get the same performance. Um, like so the baseline was a 30-gallon pot. You don't want to go any smaller than a 30-gallon pot or you're, otherwise you're not going to maintain that living soil nature or build, mm -hmm. build fungi over time. Well, and, and more importantly, it becomes more things to manage. So managing the moisture and nutrient content in four 30-gallon pots is more complicated than maintaining the soil moisture and chemistry in one container. Four separate ecosystems. Exactly. And so, you know... Um, variation in your climate regardless of how big your facility is if it's a four by four tent or like i said very very large what you're trying to mitigate is variation and so by having one focused soil container you're rewarded 
Now, a lot of people that come from other styles of cultivation are adverse to permanent soil in large containers because of the way that we used to do things. Um, but a lot has changed in the last three to five years about the way that we approach this process in general. You know, I call that the turn and burn. Exactly, the turn and burn. <clears throat> and so, you know, there's a big push, which I, I'm an advocate of. We need to stop throwing soil away needlessly. Um, we really should look into permanent soils. And when you do, you're rewarded. You're rewarded in cost. Um, you're rewarded in stability. Most people don't factor in how much of the outcome of their process is related to getting soil each time. Because simply because you purchase a given bag of soil, um, none of them are the same from batch to batch to batch. And, and regardless of who the manufacturer is, most of them have wild variations from batch to batch to batch. And most cultivators don't really think of that. And, you know, when we move to a permanent living soil, you're rewarded in that you're not starting over from frat, from a unknown base, really. Most people aren't quantifying their soil before they go in, um, and most people aren't quantifying the soil over time. Maybe you are. If you fry a plant, then you're just like, oh, well, wait a minute, what happened here? Let's go and do some soil science and see mm-hmm. where I'm at, I think is where a lot of people run into those mm-hmm. those situations. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what we do, because what's been interesting in the living soil sector is you know, I, I think it's a, been a needed change from doing a tremendous amount of work to doing the least amount of work or no work, doing no till, you know, doing doing nothing. I, I think that was a good um, goal to move towards, um, and that left a lot of people not doing chemistry and mineral analysis of their soil. So, uh, yes, as a technical person, I'm definitely an advocate of doing some sort of soil analysis of your process so that you're not guessing. You know, there there's some... Um, pretty standard goals that are easy to get to from a, from a mathematical standpoint, um, that, that will lead to significantly better outcomes over time, because that's really kind of in any organic sector. A lot of times people don't know why things are happening. And, you know, we're definitely an advocate of looking into this, doing analysis of your process, you know, doing a mineral analysis of your soil. So you know, what's in there. A, A lot of the traditional strategies for top dressing, really um, take their toll on chemistry of the soil over time. And so you want to be keeping an eye on those things. Um, And then the soil making process. I think a lot of people are confused about what's a good way to go about even producing a soil. So in the context of cannabis, which which we spend most of our time in, most people are manufacturing a soil or they're purchasing a soil. We do work with people that are working in native soil, but Across the board, most people are taking some sort of peat moss blend with compost and lava rock, something along those lines, and then using that as a permanent living soil. Um, And, you know, I think it's human nature to want to have a very static answer to that. So there's a lot of recipes like one cubic or, you know, one cup of this per cubic foot type thing. And those type of recipes are really easy for people to follow. But as a person that then does a mineral analysis of that soil after that process has been done, um, you know, a lot of times the chemistry of that soil is very out of whack. And when you talk about having a permanent living soil, that means you're fighting it for many harvest cycles, which can get very expensive and frustrating. Um, so, And you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm going to, you know, I looked up online and I found this cool, you know, amendment program and I'm going to put all these giant, you know, boxes of amendments in there and see what happens. And that's what you're saying is, you know, you don't want to end up fighting that. <clears throat> yeah, you, you really don't because regardless of size, if you're a major facility or you're a very small for facility, like a four by four tent, 
there's still electricity that's being paid for to go from harvest cycle to harvest cycle. There's still effort. There's still time. And, you know, if you miss the mark on soil chemistry, you're penalized for a very long time. And so, you know, because we were working with so many farmers of all different sizes, we've kind of gone back to the beginning of the soil making process and tried to come up with a way that leads to a better result that's more predictable. And so, you know, in the context of our situation, we're working with a lot of regulated facilities. And so we have to produce a soil that passes heavy metal testing. It's free of pesticides. So there's a very specific goal that we're going for. Um, but when we take that route, we usually end up with a very good soil that performs very well. Um, and if you're a small scale grower, sometimes, you know, a lot of the testing procedures that we do maybe aren't applicable because, you know, your, your finished material isn't going to be tested for pesticides and things like that. But, you know, my personal preference is to still do at least the basic preliminary testing on chemistry of those components so that you end up with a soil that has a desirable ratio of nutrients in it, that has a um, mineral chemistry basis that will lead to a good outcome. So um, should we go over that now or what do you think? We yeah, should I, I just the only thing popping in my head right now is I feel like the facilities I've gone to or some places that I've gone to, I think the biggest thing is there is mineral deficiencies and maybe they're not looking at that and taking that to a level. But you know, that's just the one Mm -hmm. thing I've got in my head is I feel like that is missed sometimes in certain parts of, of, of growing uh, with living soils and stuff. But yeah, let's, I'd love to get into uh, the nuts and bolts about how to mix soil and create soil and, and all these cool things you brought in here for us today. So most people are familiar with like the one-third, one-third, one-third mix. So it would be using like one-third part peat moss, one-third part compost, and then one-third part of your chosen aeration. In this case, I prefer to use pumice. Uh, There's a lot of lava rock available. We're here on the west coast of California, so pumice is easy to come by. Um, For somebody that's producing a commercial soil for regulated space, it's easier to keep heavy metals low when you're using pumice. Um, and then also, too, if you really start to get into the nuts and bolts of nutrient ma- nutrient balance, a lot of the lava rock has a tremendous amount of iron, which is fine, but then you, you then have to address the manganese in the soil to keep those two trace minerals that work together in harmony. Um, so for hitting the target goals that I'm after, it's easier for me to get to the goal with the pumice. Uh, I do understand it's not accessible everywhere. Like, it's hard to find on the East Coast and things like that. Um, and so... So most people are familiar with that. One-third part peat, one-third part compost, one-third part pumice. In my personal opinion, this soil definitely works, and that's where I started, and a lot of people have um, successful results with that over other techniques. But in my personal opinion, the peat moss is very hydrophobic. Once it becomes dry, it becomes very hard to get it moist again. Uh, The moisture doesn't move through that space very well. And then at the same time, we're trying to be sustainable. I'm not saying that necessarily any of these are really all that sustainable, but I think that digging out peat is one of the most egregious things that we do. Um, Some of the highest quality peat moss actually has really attractive biological um, content in it. And then that product is sterilized. So we're actually scooping, you know, indigenous microorganisms from nature and sterilizing them, you know, and so... I personally tend to work in a little bit more cocoa. Um, 
when I first started veering away from peat moss, I moved to, you know, I substituted the cocoa portion for the peat moss. So it was one third cocoa, one third compost and one third pumice. Uh, those results were fantastic. Growth rates were great. Yield was great. Quality was great. Uh, but for people that were maybe a little bit novice or new to the system, it could be very unforgiving as in traditional cocoa growing when you're just using cocoa in a pot and you let that media dry out too much, there's a visible negative effect on plant growth. Everything. Yeah. yeah you know, right. Oh yeah. So it's less dramatic, but it's of the same kind in that. So we've been slowly mixing for that one third component of the peat, different ratios of cocoa and peat. And so when I'm going to build a soil, and this is even for the smallest growers, I follow the same exact process. If somebody has a four by four tent and they reach out, I do the exact same thing. Uh, and people I'm, reach out with a four by four tent because they want to level up their quality. Mm-hmm. They want to take their grow to the next level. And you're going to look to somebody who has, you know, more experience than you and a consultant in a certain sense. So that's, mm-hmm. it's great to hear that you're working with people on all different scales because I know people on a small scale that like mm-hmm. want to produce the highest quality possible and, and hang their hat on that. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're out there for every day. So that's, that's cool that people can reach out to you on any scale. So. Yeah, we, you know, we don't have time for every single person necessarily because we do get busy, but I do make it a point to put focused effort into the smallest of growers. So uh, don't be needy? No, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, standard rules apply of dating. But um, no, but to me, as somebody that wants to advance living soil, it's also important to work on the smallest level of the consumer because we've seen time and time and time again, if I can get an average... Um, citizen in a four by four tent to produce very high quality living soil they will never purchase hydroponic flour from a dispensary ever again they will never do it Um, and so we put a tremendous amount of effort into the small scale process because it pushes the movement from the bottom up It, it pushes it from consumer demand which actually drives everything and so you know we do we do put a considerable amount of effort into the small growers i just personally enjoy also working at the largest scale because if I, you know, if I'm working with multi-acre properties, that's a tremendous impact on the market as far as what people do. So I feel that I can make the greatest change working with the largest farmers and then working with the smallest farmers. Um, having said that, you know, I think when people reach out to me is they've they've had problems with some of the traditional things that we do. I've followed those recipes that were you know one cu- one cup amendment per cubic foot type mentality, and they did work for me. So in that situation, I had a favorable combination of ingredients that matched well with what I was contributing to it that led to a good result. But then there's a lot of other people that maybe have a compost that's higher in potassium or higher in magnesium, and then when you mix all those ingredients together, it results in a completely different soil chemistry. And those people have an undesirable outcome. And so usually those are the people that have called me. Usually they've already tried and failed at something else. And they're looking for a little bit more uh, strategic approach to their process. Um, so, But when I'm going to build a soil for, um, for a regulated facility, which I take the same behavior for every size. But nonetheless, I go to the soil blender and I grab samples of my cocoa. I grab samples of the peat moss, I grab samples of their compost, and I grab samples of the pumice. Uh, I then use a measuring cup to formulate what my end result will be. So if that's a one-third, one-third, one-third mix, that's you know one, one scoop of my pumice, one scoop of my compost, and then one scoop of my cocoa and peat blend. Then I put that into, 
you know, I make that into a blend. And so this is a blend that has everything mixed in it. So this is it's like a cooking show. You got everything. We're like, mm-hmm. I was like, I was about to ask, are we going to actually blend this stuff? This is we awesome. Are. But we, no. we can. Um, and then, you know, once I have that homogenized mix of starting inputs with no mineral amendments, I send that into the lab for a basic Malik three test, which is about 18 to $25. Oh, wow. Depending that's, on which lab. Yeah, it is cheap. We don't need to do the full 60 to $80 spectrum. We just need to know on a basic standpoint, what is the percentage of calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium in that mixture? Um, Boom. That's a huge moment right there. Like that's huge folks. You can get it uh, just in a net, like say that. How much was it again? What? The, the test that you did that you said the Malik three was under. Well, in, in this part of the process, I'm just using a basic Malik three test, which from Logan labs is $25 from spectrum analytical. It's uh, $20. Nice. So you may at the most maybe paying another 20 bucks for shipping. So you're going to throw no. in a box, maybe less than that. And yeah, you can use the smallest box, just like a little $7 flat rate small box. So, you know, for $32, you're going to find out what the starting chemistry is of your chosen materials. And that's giving you one step in the direction of becoming an expert in your own situation. Yeah, yeah. And, and empowerment is the thing. That's also what we teach. We want people to learn this mathematics. Um, it is a bit complicated, but, you know, it's, it's out there. And, um, a lot of times if people go through this process, I'll I'll coach a small grower on a recipe because I want people to have a good result. You know, if they're willing to go through this process and send it in for testing, I'm willing to give them the gravy. Yeah. Because there's some standard things that never really change. You know, there's, there's some commonalities. There's some commonalities for me as somebody that's producing a, a large volume of soil, you know, we'll do a little bit more in-depth testing. So, you know, I'll also send this mixture off for heavy metal and pesticide screening from a local cannabis lab so that we can get an idea of what is in that soil so that we don't cause a test fail later on. So if I produce a soil for a regulated facility that has too many heavy metals or too many um, pesticide residues in it, that will get pulled up by the plant and will cause a test fail. And depending on what state you're in determines what happens after that process. But nonetheless, the whole goal is not having that happen. Yeah, and let's avoid all that. Totally, and it, and it can totally be done. So, you know, we periodically send out the peat moss and cocoa and the compost for heavy metal testing to make sure that each individual product is not creeping up. For the most part, the peat and the cocoa stay relatively similar for their quality of input. So there's peat moss sources that are always high in heavy metals. There are peat moss sources that are typically much lower in heavy metals. And again, peat moss is mined and does not regrow and recreate itself compared to a coconut. I see a lot of coconuts out there. Well, (laughs) so supposedly there's a governing body that, that minimizes the environmental impact, but nonetheless, a peat is a you know bog of decaying organic matter in nature that has a biological input and it has a a role in the system and we're still scooping it out and so anytime we scoop anything out we usually destroy the road in and out a little bit and And you're not putting it back and then they you know supposedly they're trying to be mindful but peat is my least favorite of all the products we use personally um but when we use just a cocoa core based soil, it can be unforgiving and use more water. So I'm trying to minimize the amount of peat I'm using at a starting soil so that we can do the best we can at each step to minimize environmental impact. Right now, what I'm finding the most effective is in the one third portion that the peat and cocoa would make up is like two parts cocoa to one part peat. Um, the, mm. more, the more peat you have, the more water holding capacity you have. 
the more coke you have, the, the quicker it's going to dry out. Mm. So with the Living Soil Line pots, that mixture is working really well. So when I make this mock mix up, I'll put two scoops of cocoa, one scoop of peat. I'll blend it all together until they're homogenized. Then I'll take one scoop of that, put it into the bag, take one scoop of the compost, put it into the bag, one scoop of my aeration, put it in the bag and blend it up really well. So there's not like an actual extra soil additive. It's the compost and the peat. Those are those main porch portions that are creating that home for the microbes. Well, not only that, every... Every component has its own effect on overall soil chemistry. So like the cocoa core will have a lot of magnesium and potassium in it, the peat moss less so, and then the compost is the big wild card. That's what really screws people up in this. If if the compost is very rushed, if the compost is made in very poor quality, it'll be very high in potassium. Even when you only contribute to the overall soil mix one-third of the compost, oftentimes the potassium in the compost is so high that even without adding additional amendments, you will still be way more than the goal for potassium in a finished soil mix. So for me, the first consideration is, is the compost I'm using even going to be suitable to the task? Uh, what we found in our work producing hundreds of yards over the last couple of years um, for large-scale clients is that the traditional compost sources are just wildly erratic and very problematic. And so we've started using our own inoculum compost into the soil so it can be predictable and so that we can get to the targets we want. Um, for and we want people to make their own compost would be the best way to go about it, whether you're a facility mm -hmm. or you're in a 4 by 4 tent, right? Always that's the goal. It's just it's hard in the context of a lot of people to produce the volume that they would need for soil making. We do have small-scale growers that have done that. So we have students that have made it through a lanes program or just been interested in that style of technique in general. And they've worked through the compost making process. Um, and then even when we do that, we still go through the same process. So I'll have them make up a mock mix. We'll send it into the lab for analysis. And then from there, we know what to add. Um, for people that are trying to build on a small scale, um, you know, it becomes more difficult because the supply lines change quite a bit. So you need to be quick when you do these things. So if you go to your local compost producer and you grab a sample, you want to try and, uh, go through this process quickly so that you're likely to pull from the same compost that you got a sample from, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, oftentimes when I've gone through this process, if it waits a week or two before you go in to make it, then the compost that you sampled is now gone and they're into maybe a different pile that could be a completely different set of inputs and resources and outcome. Um, and so wild I think, card. yeah, most, I think yeah. most people have no clue how wildly dynamic these things, these things are. Um, I also do other preliminary testing of the inputs. So like cocoa core has been very difficult in this last year because of coronavirus. A lot of India has shut down. And so there's been some significant supply chain disruptions. And so with cocoa, a lot of times the salt will kill you. And so I have a couple handheld meters. This is called a HANA uh, 98331 meter. I think it is. It's a grow line. And we are in a test. manufacturing facility here. So there's yeah. big slams and crazy stuff that happens every mm -hmm. once in a while, everybody. Yeah. And this guy is a little direct read. And so, um, you know, for the compost, for example, um, I use this to test the compost first. A lot of times the... That is a HANA HI98331. <laughs> exactly. So like this compost that is ours that I would use 
for the soil mixing is somewhere between 400 and 700 on this meter. It's really common that you'll... 400 and 700 EC? So it's, uh, that'd be micro Siemens per centimeter. Micro Siemens per <laughs> centimeter. Yeah, but Which is MCS, uh, I, I'm used to the, the initials the of U. it. It's the little U. Okay. Micro yeah. Siemens and Deci Siemens get really confusing. This, this meter goes through, you can switch through the different thing, but nonetheless, on this setting that I have it, you know, my good compost is reading between 400 and 700. Something that would be way too high or even toxic in the soil making process would be in like the 2000 range or the 3000 range. And that's very common with a lot of the popular compost that people follow internet recipes with. They'll be on this meter, like 3,500, which is just short circuits plants. Um, so that's the first thing I do is I, I try to get the best idea if this compost even falls into the category of acceptable. If on this meter it's like 2,000, 3,000, I won't even bother testing it. I'll just keep moving. Yeah, it's already jacked. It's already too much. And so that compost is already showing signs of negativity of high salt, um, which normally is going to have dysfunctional chemistry. Even if it doesn't have dysfunctional chemistry, the salt is going to be so high and it's going to negatively impact soil chemistry. I like how we haven't even grown any cannabis yet, and we've applied science no. multiple times. If you ain't sciencing, you ain't. Which trying. is better than, than like, that's why some people, I feel like they want to do synthetic indoor hydro because they've got all these schematics and these tools and these, you know, all these different charts and these different yeah. things that they can dial in. And there's so, there's everything like that is with living soil too. You yeah. know, like just take all that stuff and still use it with living totally. soil. I, you know? I, I came from very qualified hydroponic group. And um, they went on to do some very big things in the cannabis industry. And I, I have not let go of that mentality, even though I'm doing the most natural. Um, Regenerative. Strategy that I'm capable of doing. Yeah. Um, I'm still taking that very calculated, um, high quality dependent strategy that I learned from hydroponics. And, and, and just being very accurate in what you're doing. I, you know, I think a lot of times in the living soil, people want to go way too far down the Masanobu rabbit hole. And I think it's important to minimize our negative impact, but you can't just do nothing. Like if I you, mean, I know, you know that I've started out with soil that's had mm -hmm. great pH in the beginning of the year and I've overwatered it and I've screwed mm -hmm. up my soil pH and my EC mm -hmm. and I've turned some, a great situation into something crappy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's possible for people to take these in negative directions. Mm -hmm. That's totally. what I want to get across. Yeah. Well, and your water plays an effect on soil chemistry as well. So it's also in, important for us to do a water analysis. Um, and then as far as like further qualifying inputs, for the smaller grower, cocoa is often very salty. I learned recently that, you know, a lot of the cocoa producers actually wash the cocoa with salt water, like the seawater, because they're next to the ocean. Uh, so that's pretty wild. So I'll use, um, this is a different meter. This is a traditional pH PPM um, meter that from Hannah. Temperature, yeah. EC, PPMs, yep. and pH. Correct. And calibratable, mm -hmm. replaceable probe. Totally. Going to last you years this and is, is maybe a hundred dollars more than something you're going to get into. So this is a professional yeah. tool. Yeah. This is a very durable model. That's, you know, it's still less than 200 bucks, but I mean, this is a very quality tool. This is even one of the older models this is the HI 9813 six. Hannah. What I like about it is it's very easy to adjust. So when I, does calibrating is important. It's the most important, actually. <laughs> totally. Um, so maintaining your tools are very important. I, you know, when I 
left hydroponics and got into living soil, I abandoned all tools. And at, at one time have been somebody that advocate not really using them. But I think at this stage, you actually need to use a couple tools. Um, you know, if you're feeding, it's important to check pH and, and things like that, not get crazy adjusting them. But they do have an effect on the overall outcome. And you, you need to do basic monitoring, you know, I believe. And that's um, an important question I want to ask once we mm. get to, we've put our soil in the pot, we've moisturized it once, we've inoculated it, we're planting, when am I going to go feed it? So I know we're not anywhere near yet, but that's kind of me, like, that's kind of the path I want to bring <clears throat> us through in a certain sense, you know. Well, I, it, I threw a wrench in it there. Sorry. No, 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 you're good. I'm just, um, just want to make sure I answer appropriately. So. It depends on the, the path you want to take, right? So if you go through this process and build a really good soil that's that's got adequate levels of nutrients and has ideal balance of nutrients, you can do a very minimal effort to get a great outcome. Um, you know, some people like to provide additional nutrient. I'm one of those people. I think that the process is more consistent and predictable when you do feed more regularly. Uh, so I'm definitely an advocate of that. Um, and it's, and is that feeding microbes and nutrients or microbes and nutrients separately offsetting that kind of thing? Well, after we've made the soil mix, we've, we've determined that the chemistry is ideal. We've corrected anything that needs to be corrected so that we end up with a soil mix that has ideal chemistry. And then you put it into container and then it is time to inoculate. So we don't put any real focus on biological makeup of the soil mix because the process is so detrimental just inherently. And so once you get your finished soil mix into its container, then it's appropriate to start bringing it up to moisture, um, inoculate it with um, a quality biological source, and then from there start farming with your chosen style. So and that's when we got to be crucial about moisture levels and, and situation. And, and that's when we have a living environment we've, we're responsible for at that point. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the work that my wife and I have done is doing a tremendous amount of microscope ass assessment of soils of all type and a tremendous amount in cannabis. And most people, I think, really underestimate how day-to-day -day watering, uh, their chosen strategy for managing cover crop, their chosen strategy for top dressing amendments has tremendous effects on soil communities, good or bad. Um, and, you know, a lot of the benefit that we provide to, to various farms is even tuning the, the water volume with the microscope assessment. And so there are various trends, mm. there are various trends to excessive water. And a lot of times when we get people to reduce the water based on what we're seeing on the microscope, they then get more output which is kind of counterintuitive. Well, it's kind of like in my mind, like, I'm um, like, I want to let them dry out a little bit because when they dry out, I feel like that's when they're really absorbing what's there. And it's like when they're flooded out and they're all full of water, it's like, it's, that's diluted. You know, so there's a more concentrated form of them able to obsex, uh, to access those minerals that are there in a certain sense. And that's why people go through those wet, dry patterns. But I, I haven't moved on. I haven't gotten myself onto the blue mat system yet and correcting my moisture levels. That's that's my biggest issue in my own grow is my moisture levels. And, and, and like I've said earlier, not screwing those up throughout the times. And I don't want to talk about that right now, but um, very common thing I see. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me. <coughs> it's 
smoked a bowl on the way in. It's still. <laughs> I got to learn how to not eat spicy food before a podcast. <laughs> that was clogging my throat up. You're <laughs> <laughs> just like, got it rolling. All right. Um, yeah, wet, wet, dry cycles is a really hot topic of debate. Um, in other styles of cultivation, you're rewarded and it's, very mandatory that you have appropriate wet dry cycles what people are aiming for with those wet dry cycles is an exchange of oxygen in the root zone and so as you fill up a pot that maybe has just cocoa in it and you fill it up with water you're pushing out all the old stale air as that water dries out evaporates and get used up then it actually pulls in air and so you're doing like Mm. a manual air exchange in in a true living soil where you're relying on organisms to perform certain functions for you you actually inhibit their ability to do that effectively when you allow full wet dry cycles. So if you're inoculating Mm. with really anything, tea or compost or bugs in a bottle or whatever it is you're inoculating, if you're, if you're allowing significant drybacks, you are um, hindering their establishment and proliferation. Now on the same time, if you don't allow that to happen, sometimes you can excessively water and create mold pressure. So it's understandable that people navigate towards that side, but it's very common for people that are allowing a significant wet dry cycle that they also battle like thrips. A lot of times is very common. And a lot of times the thrips in my analysis are associated with very low biological activity, not necessarily detrimental populations, but lower than we would want to see. And those are very consistent with the dry back. So when you move into living soil, there's a, cur- a couple leaps of faith that you have to make knowing that there are better ways to manage this type of system. And that's where most people get hung mm. up. It's very common when people struggle in living soil, it's because they're holding on to a technique that worked well for them in another area of cultivation that, that does not translate. Um, full wet dry cycles, I would say, is one of those most common things that I don't feel translates very well. Um, Perfect. And, and you can you can do it. It is, impor- it is important to allow ebbs and flows, right? And so what's happening when the growth stalls, when you add the moisture from a biological standpoint in a living soil, um, any organisms that are in that root zone are going to go dormant or to sleep um, when there's that excessive moisture. And so, yes, plant growth does slow down. And as that water gets pulled up or evaporates or what have you, then those organisms start to wake up and perform more vigorously. And then, like you say, as you see it drying back, you see a, gr- a positive growth response. And so it's natural that people kind of evolve to those things. But what we've learned from really tracking a lot of soils using the microscope is that when we take a strategy that's more conducive to slowly bringing the soil up to moisture and trying to maintain that moisture as best you can, which is why the blue mats work so well. The blue mats are very good at holding a given moisture range uh, more effectively. Static moisture level. Yeah, Yeah. it does have a little bit of ebb and flow because it's such a low volume system. It's not like a sprinkler that immediately rehydrates. So there is a little bit of ebb and flow, but I think that's valuable. And, um, you know, I've not not seen an irrigation tool of any level or cost that, that is as adaptable as the blue mat system with the living soil pots. It's really hard to be because it's adapting to the weather in a certain mm-hmm. sense because hey it's a hum- very humid day and the moist <laughs> the soil didn't dry out so it's not going to trigger for a certain amount of time it's doing what an automated system should be doing i guess exactly and yeah. a lot of people want to go way on the other end of um can high you bring tech. that soil up the, oh, the yeah. bag that's all mixed again mm-hmm. yep. 
because that is cool because that's yeah. i think that's it's that you see you see here you're looking at these different items and and uh yeah can we pour it out there that'd be cool i don't want to make, make a huge mess on these fancy electronics but now we get to the mixing part right so we're just we're just going to pretend that this soil is mounted up on here and this is meant to represent a large uh tarp uh sarah and i have been do I need to help? No. Can I help you? Yeah, no? you can. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, cool. So you're that guy and I'm this guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is meant to represent like a 9 by 10 or maybe like a 10 by 15 tarp. If you're going to hand mix soil, I feel it's way easier on a tarp. And if you get the really thick silver ones that are really heavy duty, yeah. it's even better. And then essentially what you do, once you've got gathered all your materials, it's easiest if you start by spreading out the compost onto your tarp evenly from all the edges. Oh, then, that's a great idea. And okay. Then, and then so. you'll take your minerals and you'll sprinkle the minerals into the compost. And I like to use a rake, um, but you want to put the tines up so you don't poke a hole in your tarp. Cool. Yeah. If you take like a metal rake, put the tines up, you can rake it around and you can mix it quite well in the tarp. So you get your compost all spread out. You've sprinkled out your minerals and then you're going to blend it. And so when two people grab one end of the tarp and they go this way. Yep, exactly. Flip it. Yeah. And if you kind of pull them in as you walk and go like that. And you're um, pulling the sides in totally. so you're not losing anything. And the soil will actually roll in here beautifully. It'll. And so we're just kind of mm -hmm. doing this motion, exactly. motion of the ocean here. Yep. And so if you go you know, back and forth once or twice, rake it down flat with your rake. Um, sometimes it's good to go crossways, you know. Get creative. Mm -hmm. um, and then you really want to homogenize the minerals with the compost. Then you're going to put on top of that your peat and cocoa mix. And you're going to do the same thing. Couple this way, couple that way, rake it flat, get it all homogenized, break up any chunks that you see, flatten any weird spots. And so now you on your tarp, you've got your compost and your peat and cocoa mixed and, and your minerals. And then the last thing you do is... Um, put your aeration on top because that's the heaviest and it'll actually homogenize the easiest. Oh. So if you just sprinkle it across the top, a lot of times you can just very gently hit it with the rake and most of it goes and then you just fold it one or two times and then that's a batch. Wow, I've done this like mm -hmm. totally backwards a couple mm -hmm. times then, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then as, as far as getting the right amount on a tarp is really important. So we like to use containers. So the standard black and yellow tubs that people use for curing cannabis those 27-gallon models from Home Depot actually hold right up almost exactly three cubic feet. Mm -hmm. So if you take one tote full of your compost and you take one tote full of your aeration and then you take one tote of your cocoa peat mix, when you mix those all together, it's roughly a third of a cubic yard. So you can do one cubic yard in three tart batches. And, um, you know, me oh, and... That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And Great. then, um, and a three by six bed is exactly one yard of soil, I believe. So, yeah, for somebody in a four by eight tent, mm -hmm. I'd put you in a three by six bed, and mm -hmm. you do that mix three times on a tarp, and you're off to the races. Mm -hmm. And if you need to do a small, you know, if you're only filling up four 30 gallon pots, then just do the math and break it up, right? Yeah. So instead of using a 27 gallon, maybe use a 12 gallon or something. Um, but Sweet. it's, it's important that you know how much of the material is going on the tarp so that you mix in the appropriate amount of minerals. Cause if we're going to go through the process of making up a mock mix to aim for a certain goal with chemistry, when we get to the point of mixing, we want to make sure that what we calculated on paper is going to at least transfer reasonably. So normally I do that by weight. So I figure out how many, grams or pounds of um, minerals are supposed to be in a cubic yard and then i'll divide that up once i've blended them all together 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And then that way you can get a really accurate soil mix. And um, some beautiful looking stuff too. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of it. It's been um, it's been a long journey getting a soil that is, you know, hits all the boxes and dings all the bells. Dings all the bells. Most of them being, you know, not creating contamination issues in a regulated market. You know, so having a soil that's low enough in heavy metals and low enough in pesticide pesticide residues is extremely important right now. And we find that when we follow these same procedures for the small grower, it's a great outcome as well. Beautiful. So, so to recap here, we've, we've blended our soil. We've picked mm -hmm. our container for the right size situation because we want airflow. We want accessibility. Mm -hmm. We would like air to move from the bottom of the canopy to the top of the canopy and be breaking microclimates. I know, I think that's an, an important thing I've, I've, uh, I like to preach and I see a lot of benefits from that, but we're kind of off to the races. Now we've mm -hmm. got our soil in our container. Um, we've inoculated it. However, we've chosen to inoculate it. I, I just, as far as that goes, I just preach, get the microbes in the soil mm -hmm. as soon as possible and let them do their thing. Yep. Um, and then we're ready to plant. Um, if we've, if there's nothing else besides planting, I guess we're on to our next watering or our next feeding. Is there anything I'm missing in, in between that? No. You know, it can be good to put some mycorrhizal spores on the roots of transplant. Some people like to throw a little compost in the hole, you know. Should I just should I just douse that that whole hole and cover that thing with white my or with all the mycorrhiza powder in the world like just go nuts with that stuff? Well, <laughs> kind of tossing the, the the softball here, sorry. No, you're good. That's because it's just like that's one thing. It's like those stuff's so efficient. Yeah. It's like the most efficient thing you can use. Yeah, my, my personal strategy for mycorrhizal spores is we use a product that actually has mycorrhizal spores that are viable in it at an appropriate concentration. So you just use very little. Um, so we like to put the powder into a little squirt bottle, and then you just squirt a little bit on the roots. Ooh, yeah. that's a new technique I haven't heard yet. <laughs> ah, that's a. I'm going to call these cool moments a, a tap that root moment. <laughs> that's a, that's our tap the root moment is a new technique that I have never heard of, which is go. an important thing is mm. putting your mycorrhizal spores in a squirt bottle and squirting your roots down. Yeah. For that's us, cool. For us, it seems the easiest, you know, because, you know, at any scale, cost effectiveness, cost effectiveness is important. So efficiency. Yeah. Why use 10 pounds that. of powder if we can use a couple grams, you know? Yeah. It's expensive so, stuff. Mm -hmm, yeah. Okay. So we use very small amounts. Um, we calculated out with the product that we use that, you know, around a teaspoon of spores is enough spores to inoculate like a thousand clones, which is Whoa. which is kind of hard to do with a teaspoon of powder. So, you know, we just come up with a reasonable solution strength and then just... We've applied numbers. science. Mm -hmm. Yep. Math. Math. Math, then intuition. I'm not disregarding intuition, but I like to start with a couple data points for sure. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. So um, a point that I wanted to get into is, so um, we're a, uh, that plant has been in the soil a week now. We're hitting five to seven days. When are we going to think about our first feeding and what are we going to do? I mean, that's really up to personal preference, you know. Um, we've seen all outcomes have varied levels of success. Um, they all can get to the goal. So for me, my personal strategy is to feed at least once a week without really going more than twice a week. Um, because if, if you're really accurately assessing your process, if you're, if you're looking at soil chemistry, you'll see that it takes a while to change in any dramatic way as far as when you top dress to make a mineral correction. It takes a bit of time for that to impart itself onto the soil mix and start to affect chemistry analysis 
after, right? So if you sprinkle a bunch of mineral amendments on the soil and then you immediately take a sample to try and see how you've affected that soil, it's usually not the best strategy. And so what we see is that soil chemistry, even if you're maintaining it, kind of goes through an ebb and flow of really ideal to sometimes a little bit out of spec. And so that's where the people that take like a water-only strategy are really penalized. While you're waiting for that soil chemistry to become or adjust to ideal, you're wasting days of growth rates waiting for that to happen. And so that's why I say, you know, providing a small volume of, you know, liquid feed or even dry top dress, I think a little bit periodically is very advantageous. Because in the commercial space, our goal is to minimize variation and our goal is to come up with something that's predictable so a large-scale facility that has a lot on the line if soil chemistry based on the testing that we did is slightly out of spec you know we can't really sit around and wait for that soil chemistry to become perfect and plant and like we, oh man i had to wait two weeks for things to change it's exactly. like there's so much that has happened in that time exactly so you make know, a correction immediately, right? As a, as a consistency approach and as a strategy for minimizing variation from harvest to harvest so that we can have more predictable outcomes, I find it beneficial to feed gently once or twice a week. And then what about uh, if we're feeding, let's say, twice a week, would we do any foliar spraying in between that or is that too much for the plant? No, I love all that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're going to go crazy with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I come from a NASCAR background. I'm trying to haul ass. And I'm trying to get first. I'm not trying to be casual. I'm not trying to be average. We're okay. trying to kick ass. So you're trying to pump this thing. And that's like, <laughs> and that's the exciting thing is like for the person who's like sitting at home kind of counting on this as their bread and butter, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing that. And then there is something you could be doing throughout the day and pushing this plant further in a living soil system, which mm -hmm. is exciting to hear. There's more you could be doing. Well, and what we found working with farms is everybody has a pesticide regime. They're going in there regularly and spraying something to try and kill a bug or kill mold. And what we you found... You have that like unknown factor <laughs> in your head of like, I'm looking, but what if I didn't see it? Well, or I didn't know it was like going crazy or, you know, yeah, well, life happens. There's a certain level of responsibility in performing your part in pest control we'll say so it, it is it is appropriate that people want to regularly try to reduce undesirable things in the cultivation space what we found was that most cultivators were going in and spraying a fungicide or something to kill mites and mold some sort of pesticide or fungicide and most people were doing that one or two times a week with a various product and what we found was when we substituted those poisons for nutrition a lot of times that also minimized pest problems. Just as efficiently as the pesticides did. Very close to, yeah, because there's two things going on. Well, three things, two major things going on. One, if you're spraying a traditional pesticide or fungicide, it's not really having any positive effect on that plant from a nutrition standpoint or even a metabolism standpoint. And it becomes a gradient of what detriment is coming from your chosen strategy for pest and mold control. And over time, most cultivators don't realize that the products they're choosing for pest and mold control are also creating other undesirable aspects of the cultivation space. And so when we substitute poisons for nutrition, a lot of times pest pressure goes down very low. And, and in our situation where we're monitoring 
biological communities with the microscope in the soil, we literally never have mold problems. And a lot of times people get offended by that statement. And I've definitely seen a lot of hydroponics where mold becomes biblical. But when you're, when you're monitoring the soil from a biological standpoint, the way that we do and make the corrections to maintain healthy and ideal levels of soil communities, mold is the easiest thing to deal with in living soil strategies. Um, so much so that almost every farm that we work with very intimately stops having any sort of PM issue sometime during the first harvest. Very rarely does that powdery mildew issue continue into the second harvest that they've worked with us. Because it's starting in the soil or it's for, excuse me, foreseen in the soil. Well, both. It is both. So, okay. so excessive water um, leads to excessive um, water molds like the omycetes that we have def defined them as. And as the omycete value climbs and exceeds the beneficial fungi, you're definitely going to have a mold issue. So when we're inoculating in, in a beneficial fungi fashion and when we're behaving in a way that leads to low omycetes and high other aerobic beneficial organisms, mold will remove itself from your building. And, you know, we've worked with farms for well over a year, very intimately. And once that mold leaves, it doesn't come back. And then even when our consulting client relationship ends, the mold doesn't come back after we leave, you know, so it's not, it's the corrections that we contributed to the alteration to the space, but then they stay, you know, because the behavior usually of the farm stays in line with what we were teaching them to maintain a mold free environment. What I'm trying to say is, you know, a lot of the farms that we work with will go the entire consulting relationship without powdery mildew, and then it never comes back, ever. And you get stuck on something that works, and you stick with it, and what? then it impacts mm -hmm. multiple. I mean, that's why it's like, yeah. there's like, oh, that really worked for me. Okay, I'm hanging my hat on that. I'm continuing forward with that, obviously. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're bent, you're rewarded by that. So when you're minimizing mold pressure from a soil biological standpoint, you also get potency. You also get yield you also get health. And so it's not, it, it stops becoming minimizing mold. It becomes continuing these other benefits I'm getting by behaving in a way that also minimizes mold. And why would you not want to be in that area to have the forgiveness for when mother nature happens and say a wildfire sweeps through and your plants are, you know, within a couple hundred feet of that or something, or let's say there's power outages or there's so many different things that our cultivators are facing nowadays in Northern California with this last summer. I mean, if it wasn't for the fires and for this other stuff, I would have say that this is like the best growing summer I've seen in the last 10 years, honestly, if it wasn't for the <clears throat> fires and all the smoke. So, yeah, yeah, it was a wild year for sure. Uh, we were up there in Grass Valley in the thick of the fires and that was a handful. Yeah, that was a real handful for sure. But we still grew tremendous quality cannabis you know yeah um the the cloud from the cloud cover from the fires definitely inhibited density this year so it wasn't a great year for density in our region um we were able to avoid any sort of like the burnt barbecue flavors we you know we got the electric leaf blower and blew off the plants and then rinsed them off with water and then rinsed them off with uh, compost tea so that we're trying mm. to blow off as much physical particles as possible rinsing off what's left and then um, re-inoculating the leaf surfaces with beneficial biology. Because microbes can survive on the leaf after the liquid has dried. I think that a lot of people in their mm -hmm. minds, like, for years I thought, like, oh, I'm going to spray something on the leaf surface, and once it dries, it dies, and if mm -hmm. it 
if I had an effect to it, great. If not, whatever. But no, those microbes are still there and living and functioning. Absolutely. And you can measure their effect. So like with different types of microscopes, one's called an epifluorescent microscope, and you can actually see the beneficial organisms glowing green on the leaf surface. You can see actually, them partying? You can actually see a little party going on, a little, wow. little neon rave situation going on. But yeah, there's actually enough moisture on the leaf surfaces of plants for these organisms to exist. And that's, you know, really how they evolved. So even though you spray the tea and everything appears to dry, a lot of those organisms then survive on that leaf surface until something disrupts them. So if you then follow up with an IPM, you're probably wiping them all out again, which actually creates the conditions for powdery mildew. So most of powdery mildew is a competition issue. If there is adequate coverage of beneficial soil organisms on your leaf, there's no way for the undesirable mold to establish. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is what's happening in the root zone from a biological standpoint, how that affects chemistry and plant nutrition, and how that manifests as a mold issue on the leaf surface. So by correcting those soil communities with the microscope, you can really navigate away from mold from a math standpoint. And when you talk about like in the regulated space, that's an extreme advantage over any other technique because hydroponics certainly can't do that. So part of navigating the regulated space is also providing a product that's clean from pesticides and fungicides. So if we can remove fun or if we can remove fungal pathogens off the table almost entirely within the first month or two, um, you know, that's a tremendous advantage over your competition and it's a tremendous advantage over quality. This is why I believe, you know, the combination of the living soil line pots, um, the blue mat system, like that will become the predominant strategy for cultivation in the regulated space over the next few years. You're already, you're already starting to see a tremendous shift. You're already starting to see a lot of hydroponic cultivators now motivated to get into living soil because of the regulated space and because of the quality components. So and the ROI, the turn yeah, on investment, obviously. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. So for the same or less cost for just from a nutrient standpoint in, um, in living soil, you can get way better outcome. So we've never had a situation where living soil outpaces the cost of hydroponics. And for the most part, it's usually half or maybe one-fifth the cost, depending on how basic of a strategy you take, you know. I prefer to use up a little bit of that budget. Like if we can already be so much more cost effective than hydroponics, then we should use a little bit of that budget to outpace our neighbors, you know? So for us, the goal isn't to be as cost effective as possible. It's the goal is to be cost effective while producing the best quality and the most yield. So I kind of navigate somewhere in that range. So less cost than hydroponics, but more cost than the people that do or will say that they're doing water only. Yeah. You know? And then there's a huge mix of like water only. And then I'm a hemp grower growing mm -hmm. in a huge field. Mm -hmm. And it seems like those guys have like this cool nonchalant, like uh, we've done a lot of stuff and we don't have to drive the plant forward. It's pushing itself. Like I seem that they seem like they've got this more relaxed, casual, we don't have to do as much kind of thing. Are you seeing that as well? Well, yeah, that's that's what really attracted people to living soil, because if you were an average grower and you were following any of the, you know, salt based techniques, if you move to a coots mix or, a, or a, um, a super soil and started doing that, most often you did a better job at that than you were doing in the hydroponic techniques. Mm. 
So most stepping up in my experience, most people, when they switch to one of those techniques, they had an improvement in quality. Maybe yield went down um, compared to what they were able to produce in hydroponics, but it's the not bag be- appeal and smell shot up off the chart. Yeah. And, and then so, you look like this mm-hmm. amazing grower and you're better than all your other buddies and you get more dollars. So, yeah. um, but then where we kind of fall in line is then like, if, if you're accurately measuring your process, you can then push things like hydroponics. And I'm not saying push it in a way that negatively affects flavor. People often associate pushing with undesirable characteristics. We don't get those in living soil. Um, you got a buffering zone to protect you. A yeah, bit it's there. just a way better, cleaner system. And we don't use any nutrients that leave a foul taste or residue. So we can, we can use them without fear of negatively impacting the product. And honestly, what we find is that when we, when we feed liquid feeds with a balanced chemistry, full fertility approach, then you also get more quality, more potency and more yield. So, you know, it's, it's quite easy to beat hydroponics in all categories when you take that strategy. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Quality, yield, potency, everything. Get a little bit of cool style in there too. Exactly. And you get cool points. It's popular now. Yeah. Popular to be living soil. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome. Yeah, man. Um, any other points that you want to cover here today that, uh, you think we may have overstepped or I may have Mm. derailed us on? No, I think it was solid. One of my main goals was, you know, it seemed like the common request of the community is help us build a quality soil to put in these fantastic containers. And I think, you know, I, I don't have a soil recipe. A lot of times people ask me for a soil recipe. I don't have a soil recipe. I have a soil making process. And because well, my, qualifications throughout that mm, process, mm. obviously, is what we went through today. Yeah. And so just recapping, just making sure that the compost that you're using is even suitable to the overall goal. Um, and then once you've mixed your available materials together, what's the chemistry of that without adding amendments? And then we only add the amendments we need to get into a desirable chemistry. That's really what I'm trying to advocate. So kind of moving away from this one cup per cubic foot strategy, which some people end up with a good result. Some people end up with a terrible result. If we take a, you know, a little bit more of an analytical approach, we can have a great result Beautiful. very, very easily. And so, you know, the math to that's a little complicated. That's why, you know, if somebody is a small grower and reaches out, you know, a lot of times I'll help them with that math, uh, you know, for what to do with the soil mix. Um, or I, I always encourage people to learn the math themselves. So a lot of the math is involved in, in, you know, all the math, a lot of the math that's involved is contained in a book called um, uh, the, I, the Ideal Soil Version 2.0 by Michael Astra. Oh. So there's a lot of the math involved in doing these types of calculations in there. Um, that was the book that I read to get to the foundational math principles to perform this t- process. So if you're into math, I definitely suggest looking into it. We need more people. I can't possibly satisfy all the needs of the community. And so we do need people that are empowered, that are capable of doing this math so that they can provide the service to the people that don't want to get into the math. Because it's not for everybody, and that, that's fine too. Yeah. But if we had a few more people that were capable of doing this math, then we could all help each other get to the same goal. So there's opportunities. Exactly. There's so many opportunities for growth there. There's plenty. So I have one yeah. final question, mm-hmm. um, because this is one thing that I want to bridge the gap on in this podcast is um, 
applying these usages, applying these tools to your own food crops. I know you guys grow a lot of food. You love to grow mm-hmm. your own food. And I love the taste of my own food. I love, I mean, a lot of it doesn't even make it to the kitchen because I'm eating it while I'm in the garden with my plants. That's Honestly, like, That's you know, point, especially actually. my my banana string beans, those big giant yellow string beans. I mean, those things don't even make it in the house. You That's know? the point. So yeah. um, how much of this can we apply to the garden where we've got, you know, some raised beds full of vegetables and our six, six plants here in California that are legal. Can we apply the same exact stuff for this whole thing and do a little build out and say, Hey, I'm going to do six plants within a few hundred square feet and then a few extra hundred square feet of vegetables and continue with the same regiment throughout both. Is that, is that possible? Yeah, that that's been our entire goal, right? So, you know, my wife, Sarah and I have worked with every type of growing situation you can imagine. We've worked with the largest scale of hydroponics in the regulated space. We've worked with famous botanical gardens. We've worked with city parks and rec. We've worked with small food farmers. We've worked with market gardeners. We've worked with neighborhood gardeners. Uh, we've worked with food farmers as large as 6,000 acres. Um, what we've tried to do is take approach that works everywhere. You know, it works on a golf course and it works on my cannabis. And so, you know, if you're a vegetable farmer, you should absolutely tap into some of the things that we're talking about because they're extremely effective. Well, if you're a vegetable farmer, totally. I feel like you've probably already are using some of these things. Um, well, the tough part about food farmers, um, of all the people that we've worked with, the smallest percentage of that totality of our work has been like the smaller vegetable garden. The reason why that is, is a lot of the smaller vegetable gardens have a mental block of cost effectiveness. And so they feel that they can't afford to do anything. So they don't look into anything. And and I feel the other out way. Out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> well, yeah. And so that you just, we've tried, we've tried to even work with small market gardeners for free just to, you know, you know, for the community. And a lot of times, even when we offer free services, they, they always respond with, well, I can't afford to do anything anyways. And I think that's a really unfortunate mental, mental They're like, place. it is what it is. Well, but that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you never do any analysis, then you're most likely to end up in a shit outcome. So, you know, there's a significant lack in, in good information for small market gardeners and small vegetable farmers. There's a significant lack in good practices by that entire community and um you know in a lot of ways they're the most important they're the ones producing the food the way food should be yeah. provided to humans in quality and close to your locale and in seasonal so these and, are yeah. some of the most important people I, I i would like to see that community at least get into basic soil chemistry analysis um we might have just lost video yep we definitely just lost video that's interesting yeah it was good i was going off on a little rant yeah i guess for the audio will allow space to cut that out. And I would just like to see, um, I would like to see the small food farmers take a more analytical approach because in a lot of ways, they're following the exact same procedures that people in the no-till living soil community are. They're top dressing a high NPK formula of amendments, which is fine for yield, but over time, it's extremely destructive to desirable soil chemistry. And so over time with that strategy in the living soil world and in the in the vegetable farming world is you end up with dysfunctionally low calcium with extremely high magnesium and potassium and nitrogen 
And so it works great for two, three, four harvest cycles maybe, and then it starts to really get south. And that's where things really go haywire for, you know, whether the small home grower, the large commercial cannabis grower, um, vegetable growers of any type, they all run into that problem. And, and the reason we don't know that is because not enough people are even analyzing soil chemistry to see that these things are happening. So in my analysis of the market, looking back at it, you have a lot of people that top dress um, in a way that's not conducive to healthy soil chemistry. And then at some point it all blows up and nobody really knows why. And then you fight it for a harvest cycle or two. And then you either, either throw out the soil or then you might look into somebody to help you with soil chemistry like, like me. And then from that point, it takes two to three harvest cycles to correct any of that dysfunction. So when you zoom back and look at a farm that starts with a brand new soil, they start dry top dressing the amendments per the internet guidelines. And somewhere between harvest two and four, it goes south. And then they might look into... Somebody lost a job. Mm-hmm, yeah, a lot of times. A lot of times, yeah. Or just maybe everybody lost their job because the farm went out of business. Um, and you know, at the small scale, maybe you had to pick up a second job to get them lights fired up again. And so, you know, I, am really an advocate of doing some basic levels of analysis to keep track of what's going on. And, you know, more people in the community would know that this is happening if more people were doing analysis of their process. So we all just kind of live in this world where it's just expected that two to three harvest cycles every couple of years goes way South and it doesn't have to be that way. You know, a couple $25 tests, you can avoid thousands and thousands of dollars of disaster. So a little bit, a little bit of an investment for a big outcome. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And, and know why you're doing something. I think it's very important to be inquisitive and look into the why. And that's what's really missing in organics versus hydroponics. A lot of times in hydroponics, trends pass down from people that have done the chemistry analysis, that have done the math. And so those kind of trickle down to the people that don't do it. Um, in, in organics, you have almost a um, uh, deliberate defiance of analysis, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that's sometimes advocated by other people in the community, which is kind of silly. But, um, you know, we really need to find in organics a functional way to analyze our process because we're already seeing a transition where hydroponic people are moving into living soil and they are very analytical and they are very open and so you and they're about numbers and they're about the numbers and yeah. so they they want to so we're seeing a lot of success in people that were formerly good at hydroponics that moved to living soil learned a new technique but maintained a certain reasonable level of analytical mindset into their process and inquisitiveness that's working very well right now. So Beautiful. Yeah, Thank man. you for answering that question because it's important that mm-hmm. these aspects bridge multiple gaps and multiple different crops and styles and yep. applying them to your little house plant succulents all the way up to, you know, what's what's landing on the plate at home mm-hmm. and or what's what's what you're smoking. So Yeah. Yeah, you know trying to tap into that 300 million years of evolution benefits any cultivation style. 300 million years of evolution. Exactly. It's already been figured out. It's already been figured out. Tap in. Tap in. Tap in. (laughs) Tap root. No, is it tap root? Tap, tap, tap that root moment. Tap that root moment. Tap that root moment. Yes. Tap that root. We were uh, considering names for the podcast and that was the, the most shouted out reference in the office. Tap that root podcast. And then we, um, 
came to our realization that it needs to be Grassroots Living Soil Podcast. And I'm glad we did. And we put it out to the community to vote on the name. And the community did vote that that is overwhelmingly <laughs> the name of what our podcast should be. And that is, um, well, you're going to see a transition with grassroots. Uh, you're going to see the fabric pots drop away in Grassroots Living Soil because um, we are promoting the living soil pots. And that's a, a great way to grow on, on many different levels. So that's what we're doing. And um, trying to create this podcast to... Um, give you a path through living soil and keep it focused. I feel there's a lot of lot of conversations out there that get wildly off track because somebody's got to pitch in some important point of a little nugget that they feel they are successful with. And and um, we just want to keep it dialed in here. We want people to put their input in and comment, like, mm-hmm. give us ideas and help us out and visit us. And and can you want to take a second and tell us about your, your social medias and your websites and how we can reach you and yeah. And, and um, bother you? Yeah. So on Instagram, we have at Cressive Soil, which is C-R-E-S-C-I-V-E, and then the word soil, S-O-I-L. And our website is crescivesoil.org. And we, there's a little contact there if you want to find us there. Or you guys selling stuff on the website? A little bit, yeah. We have a little shopping cart with some of the products we use. Um, Buy some aloe vera or some little some foliar spray stuff, maybe. Yeah, some other stuff. There's a lot of people doing aloe vera, so yeah, it's very yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so that's covered. I feel like yeah. you know, I think it's important. You know, if I'm going to advocate um, cooperative strategies, then I need to behave in a cooperative way. And so if I try to sell everything. I think that's less cooperative. So, yeah. yeah, letting people sell aloe vera, I think, you know, helps helps the community be more intertwined and less dependent on one outlet, I guess you could say. So, you know, we sell some of the more high-performance nutrients that aren't really available to the small-scale grower because um, those are unique. Um, and we do Great. sell amendments. So if, like, somebody wants to uh, make a small batch of soil. I, I have all the amendments. And so I blend them all up and then send them to people. So we have that as well. Great. And of course. Great. So working with you is on a scale of phone call or contact all the way to, we can pay you to come out to our farm and take up, you know, your whole day if we want to. Yeah. And we do that. So we do very intensive long-term, um, commercial clients where we work for many months coming to their facility. Uh, and then we also just are accessible for a phone call. Um, by the hour. Uh, we recently started a, um, a internet forum where small scale growers can connect with us on the regular. So we have a, our aggressive growers group and we meet, you know, at least once a month for a zoom call and talk about what people are going on and, um, people put up grow logs and then we comment and kind of give advice. So that was something that we people felt keep like track of what they do. People are yeah. So one of the one of the main goals of the forum was to have a private space where people could really go from start to finish. You can't do that on social media. Like the the social media is painting this really dysfunctional view where nobody has any mistakes ever. And so small scale growers think that nobody ever has any problems, and that when they have problems, they take it very personal. But really, everybody's having tremendous amount of problems Uh, they just don't put that on social media so really the main goal of the crescent growers group was to have a space that's authentic that we could we could talk about the problems and find a solution and move past it because really most people are fighting the same problem really Um, there's there's three or four main issues that most people all struggle with and so having a place that we could privately talk about that without fear of brand damage or you know, have people heckling you on social media. 
we started that so that we could, because the common request was that we, you know, needed to be more accessible to smaller growers, which is true. Um, we got really caught up in some very big projects, which is what I like to do. Um, and so we kind of circled back and, and how could we really connect effectively with the small grower in the capacity that we connect very intimately with a large commercial facility. Uh, we were starting to see that the commercial facilities that we were working with were remarkably quiet about the effects that we had on their property. <laughs> <laughs> so most people really have no clue what we actually do or what those outcomes actually are. So that was kind of a secondary goal for the growers group is so that people can um, talk about the successes they are having with living soil. Because most people that really have tremendous success keep it very quiet. I liken it to like being in the mid to late nineties and having that Josh D O G cut, you know, like mm. you didn't share it with anybody. You just used it. And yeah. that's kind of where we're at in the living soil world that a lot of the high performance people are using that advantage, you know, rightfully so. And it's good that people use the advantages they create. Um, but we are also heading into a climate crisis. We are heading in, we're now currently in the middle of a worldwide health crisis, which in my opinion, is absolutely correlated to the microbiological condition of the planet and humans in, in general. And one of the easiest solutions to that major problem that we're facing right now is a healthy soil system that you're interacting with, whether that's a 30-gallon pot growing grass, whether that's, um, you know, cannabis, whether that's vegetables, whatever it is, you know, I, I, I've said this before in the past, like, maintaining these biological communities in the soils and on the humans should be a matter of national security and be, be, be that serious. Um, and prior to coronavirus, I probably sounded pretty kooky saying things like that, but here we are like, this is legitimately, uh, in my opinion, a matter of national security and, and extreme importance for all, all citizens. And so one of the greatest contributions you can give to yourself your family and your fellow man at this point is putting a quality soil into a container like this or wood beds whatever you got you know yeah. I, I obviously a native soil if you I, got it we don't we're not a, absolutely you know. any of that but making it living you know having a biologically complete compost to inoculate is is the healthiest response to this current situation and letting nature take over too yeah. Exactly. You know, you get to see all the bees and all the other animals mm -hmm. and the birds come in and all that exactly. stuff. So. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Scott. I really yeah, appreciate it. We've yeah, hit man. a little bit over an hour here and we lost video throughout that. So, hey, man. Hey. We, we crushed it for a first Yeah. yeah man, this is awesome, it. man. I, I think we got out some really cool stuff and I'm glad yeah. that we're able to focus in on some things. And, uh, and yeah, so I think we'll go ahead and end it, end it there. Thank you so much. Sounds good, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening today. I just want to take a moment and ask you guys to uh, please subscribe, uh, like, comment, uh, get involved. This is your community, and uh, we would love to hear from you and see which direction we should take these conversations on a daily basis. Uh, thank you for listening today.